Chapter 3, Part 1 of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, The North Pole, Part 1. When skeptical people say that polar exploration has been of no benefit to mankind, it is permissible to think that their judgment is as unsound as their point of view is limited. Not only have polar explorers added enormously to the scientific knowledge of the world, but they have also materially aided commerce. But even if these voyages had been barren of scientific and commercial results, they would have been infinitely worth making. For among polar explorers are many men who must be universally regarded as heroes. No training was more rigorous and dangerous, no work has ever called for more endurance, resource, and courage. A nation which is without its heroes is in a sad plight. A nation which has them and ignores their example can only be looked upon with pity. The spirit of high adventure is one that no country can afford to neglect. The history of geographical discovery is, in its initial stages, almost solely one of conquest. Men, either for their own or their country's profit, and sometimes for both, went out in search of unknown lands because they wanted to trade with them. Pythias, who has been described as one of the most intrepid explorers the world has ever seen, was the first man to bring news of the Arctic regions to the civilized world. He did not pretend to have visited them, but in or about 330 B.C., he set out from Marseille and journeyed north. During this voyage, which must have lasted for several years, he visited Britain, and then, proceeding to the most northerly point of the British Isles, he heard of an Arctic land called Thule, which at one time of the year enjoyed perpetual day, and at another had to endure perpetual night. With a leap over a few hundred years, we come to Ptolemy, whose influence on geography was almost paramount from the second century to comparatively modern times. No one is more dangerous than a bad cartographer or more valuable than a good one, but although Ptolemy made many mistakes, he also did such splendid work that it is quite easy to forget them. To him, we owe the names of latitude and longitude, and it has been well said of him that he held the extraordinary distinction of being the greatest authority on astronomy and geography for over 1,500 years. Ptolemy's work may have required to be corrected and amplified, but at least he gave the world something which was worthy of correction. In the 8th and 9th centuries, Norsemen became terrors in Europe. Harold of the Fair Hair reigned from 860 to 930 A.D., and these seventy years formed a period of great adventure. During Harold's reign, the Norsemen colonized Iceland, and in 983, Eric the Red founded a colony in Greenland, which flourished until the Norwegians ceased to take an interest in it. Not until the 15th century did English seamen begin to turn their attention to the north they were more or less forced to do so. Portugal and Spain were all powerful in the east and west, and so England began earnestly to think of discovering a way to Cathay and the Spice Islands by a northern route. 
but if we were a little slow in beginning to pay attention to the arctic regions we have every cause to be satisfied with our work after we had once begun it the fifteenth century saw considerable activity as regards scandinavia but it was not until fifteen o five that a charter was granted to the company of merchant adventurers and from that year we can date our real interest in arctic discovery it is well perhaps to bear in mind while thinking of polar exploration that there is a marked difference between the two polar regions the arctic is an ocean surrounded by continental lands the antarctic is a continental land surrounded by oceans in 1553, Sir Hugh Willoughby set out to try and find a northeast passage to the Indies. On this voyage, in which Willoughby lost his life, Novia Zemla was discovered, and Richard Chancellor, who took part in the expedition, reached Archangel, and then, traveling overland to Moscow, was received graciously by Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia. This visit was of importance because it helped to establish trade between England and Russia. Competition to find a route northwards to China and the Indies had by this time become acute in Europe, and many bold navigators set out from England. Among the sailors who were maintaining her high record on the seas, Sir Martin Frobisher deserves especially to be mentioned. In 1576, he set out, cheered, doubtless by knowing that Queen Elizabeth had a good liking of their doings, to find a northwest passage. On three occasions, Frobisher voyaged northwards, and he reached Greenland and discovered the strait that was named after him. He is not worthy, Sir Humphrey Gilbert wrote in the latter part of the 16th century, to live at all who, for fear of danger or death, shunneth his country's service or his own honor, since death is inevitable and the fame of virtue immortal. Most assuredly, our Elizabethan sailors did not shun their country's service, and Elizabeth herself was the first to appreciate and encourage their enterprise. In 1585, yet another distinguished explorer, John Davis, embarked upon his career, and during his voyages, he made discoveries that converted the Arctic region from a confused myth into a defined area. He found several passages toward the west, and thus strengthened the hope of finding a northwest passage. And he also reached the farthest north, 72 degrees 12 minutes north, some 1,100 miles from the geographical North Pole. As yet, no one had turned his thoughts to the North Pole itself, but it may truly be said that Davis and men of his caliber were already beginning to prepare the way for the time when it would be reached. For his discoveries, like those of many of the earlier explorers, were both important in themselves and also act as a guide and incentive to those who followed. In the meantime, Davis had obtained the record for the farthest north, a record which Great Britain, with the exception of a very few years, continued to hold until 1882. Many English navigators did great work in maintaining this record, and among them was Henry Hudson, who set out in 1607 with the object of finding a northwest passage to the Indies. Hudson, in this voyage, reached 80 degrees north and did most valuable work in the Spitsbergen Quadrant. 
It is also reported that two of his men saw a mermaid, which may at least be taken as evidence that they were more than ordinarily observant. Both geographically and commercially, Hudson's voyages were of the first importance. He not only made many discoveries, including that to the river which bears his name, but he also brought back the news that led directly to the establishment of the Spitsbergen whale fishery, an industry that was extremely lucrative to Holland. In 1615, William Baffin discovered the land that is called after him, and then, for some time, English discovery in the Arctic regions ceased to be noteworthy. Baffin made no less than five voyages to the north, and, scientifically, his observations were permanently valuable to subsequent explorers. Apart from geographical discovery, these Arctic voyages had so far been a great stimulant to trade. In Greenland, Davis Strait, and the Spitsbergen Seas, trade had followed discovery, and what had happened in those parts of the Arctic also took place in Hudson's Bay after the Hudson's Bay Company was formed in 1668. In fact, for the time being, the desire to make geographical discoveries was almost obliterated by the desire to trade. It is, however, pleasant to note that during the 18th century, some of our governments took an intelligent interest in the geographical discovery. They offered a reward of 5,000 pounds for reaching 89 degrees north, and 20,000 pounds was offered to anyone who could find the Northwest Passage. In the earlier part of the 18th century, the part that the Russians took in Arctic discovery must not be omitted. In 1728, Peter the Great sent out an expedition under the command of Vitus Bering, a Dane, in which Bering Strait and other discoveries were made. And although it is impossible to mention them in detail, the contributions that the Russians made in revealing the new world to the old were most creditable to them as a nation. In 1773, Captain Phipps conducted an expedition which now derives its chief interest from the fact that Horatio Nelson, then a young midshipman, took part in it. Great, says Sir Clement Markham, as are the commercial advantages obtained from Arctic discovery, and still greater as are its scientific results, the most important of all are its uses as a nursery for our seamen, as a school for our future Nelsons, and as affording the best opportunities for distinction to young naval officers in time of peace. And it is incontestably true that many of our finest sailors have learnt their trade in the severe school of the geographical exploration. With the advent of the 19th century, many expeditions were sent to the far north. The desire actually to reach the North Pole itself did not enter the thoughts of these courageous navigators, the main object of their voyages being either to find the Northwest Passage around North America to the Indies or the Northeast Passage around Asia. Nevertheless, each one of these voyages added to the store of knowledge that was being accumulated. Each expedition solved some of the mysteries of the North and prepared the way for the solution of what came to be considered the greatest mystery of all. In 1819, Sir Edward Perry embarked upon the first of the Arctic voyages which have made his name famous in the annals of exploration. A sailor by profession, 
Perry was happy and possessing the qualities that fitted him to lead men. During his first expedition, the prize offered by the English government to the first navigator who passed the 110th meridian was won. Perry and his party spent a winter in the Arctic, a winter which, thanks to their leader's careful preparations, was passed without mishap. And then, when the winter was over, an expedition to explore the interior of Melville Island was made. Thus, Arctic traveling was inaugurated by Perry. Other successful voyages under the same leadership followed, and when, in 1827, our Admiralty began favorably to consider the idea of getting as near as possible to the Pole by way of Spitsbergen, Perry was naturally chosen to command the expedition. So, for the fourth time, Perry sailed northwards, and having reached the north coast of Spitsbergen, he found a good harbor for his ship, the Hecla, and left her there. The explorers had taken specially fitted boats with them, and these they hoped to be able to haul over the ice. The summer, however, had begun to break up the floes, and in consequence the travelers had constantly to take the steel runners off the boats so that stretches of open water could be crossed. Moreover, the floes they did find seemed to resent such treatment, for most of them were small and bestrewn with most obstructive hummocks. Not until they had been pulling and hauling for nearly a month did they meet with large floes, and by that time the southerly drift of the ice was in full swing. However hard Perry and his men pulled, they found that the drift was as strong as they were or stronger. After terrific labor, Perry reached 82 degrees 45 minutes, a higher latitude than any reached during the next 50 years. It was a great attempt by a man whose devotion to his duty is beyond all praise. Before we come to the most tragic story in the history of Arctic exploration, reference must be made to the discoveries of Captain John Ross. In his first expedition to the north, Captain Ross was not successful, but in his second voyage, when he was accompanied by his nephew, James C. Ross, who afterwards gained distinction in the Antarctic, the magnetic North Pole was discovered and the British flag fixed there in 70 degrees 5 minutes 17 seconds north and 76 degrees 16 minutes 4 seconds west. Ross's expedition spent four consecutive winters in the far north, discovered over 200 miles of coastline, and returned with a bountiful crop of scientific knowledge. We may well admire the love of adventure and the desire to make geographical and scientific discoveries which induce these constant expeditions to parts of the world that cannot possibly be called inviting. Honor was, and is, due to the man who undertook them, but to John Franklin's memory a special honor is paid, for his name is connected with both heroism and tragedy. As a boy, Franklin, in spite of his father's opposition, determined to be a sailor. At the age of 14, he was in the Polyphemus at the Battle of Copenhagen, and subsequently he was present at the Battle of Trafalgar. Peace, then as always, brought unemployment for sailors with it, and at the age of 29, Franklin found himself unwanted in the Navy. When, however, the Admiralty decided in 1818 to send expeditions to find the North Pole and the Northwest Passage, 
Franklin was chosen to command the Trent. This ship was totally unsuited for such a task, and owing to official economy, not to say parsimony, Franklin had to return without achieving any success. In the following year, he was again sent out with orders to explore the northern coast of Arctic America and the trending of that coast from the mouth of the copper mine eastwards. Not until 1822 did this expedition of discovery come to a close after 5,550 miles had been covered by water and land. The tale of its adventures, extraordinary as they were, is only the preface to Franklin's life as an explorer. So famous indeed was he that when, in 1844, he returned from Tasmania, where he had been governor for seven years, he was offered the command of an important Arctic expedition. At this time, he was nearly 60 years old, but he was anxious to resume his exploratory work, and in 1845 he sailed with the Erebus and the Terror, ships that had already won their laurels under Sir James Ross in the Antarctic. In the hope of finding the Northwest Passage, so much coveted and so long concealed, Franklin was instructed to try a route by Wellington Channel, if ice did not block the way. The channel was found to be clear, and the explorers made their way up it until they reached 77 degrees north. Then their advance was blocked by ice, and they turned south and found winter quarters off Beachy Island. All so far had gone well, and when the ships were released from the ice at the end of the winter, hopes for further successes must have run high. But presently a mistake was made that had fatal results, a mistake due to an error of the chart-makers. For some time the ships sailed gaily on, important discoveries being made from day to day. Then came the fatal decision. All was open to the south. If they had continued on their southerly course, the two ships would have reached the Bering Strait. There was the navigable passage before them. But, alas, the chart-makers had drawn an isthmus, which only existed in their imagination, connecting Boothia with King William Land. So they altered their course to the west and were lost. Soon the ships were surrounded by a dense ice-pack, and were dangerously imprisoned. In the spring of 1847, traveling parties were sent out, and one of them, under Graham Gore's command, discovered a northwest passage, and consequently proved the connection between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. When the parties returned, Franklin was seriously ill, and he died on the 11th of June, 1847. No more beautiful epitaph has ever been written than the one in Westminster Abbey, which Tennyson wrote in honor of John Franklin, his uncle-in-law. Not here, the cold north hath thy bones, and thou, heroic sailor soul, art passing on thy happier voyage now, towards no earthly pole. A terrible winter for this gallant band of explorers followed. For months and months the ice remained impenetrable, and at last the ships had to be abandoned. Even if the Erebus and the Terror could have been freed from the ice, it was more than doubtful if they would float, so battered were they by their long, slow drift. Food was both inadequate in quantity and poisonous in quality. Twenty-two officers and men died during that winter of horror, 
the rest were so weak from privations that although they knew their only chance was to retreat by back's fish river none of them had the strength successfully to undertake such a march it is useless to dwell over the sufferings of these heroic men captain crozier and captain fitzjames took every precaution and made all preparations that were under the circumstances possible but the dice were too heavily loaded against them with their two heavy boat sledges they started on the twenty second of april eighteen forty eight to make their desperate effort not one of them survived the erebus sank when the ice released her the terror also sank but not until she had drifted on to the american coast and been plundered by eskimos it is pitiable to think that prompt action from england might have saved some at least of these valuable lives but at first although there was considerable anxiety about their fate no effort was made to find them not until eighteen forty eight were expeditions sent out in search of franklin's party and neither of these was successful in finding any traces one of these expeditions was however noteworthy for leopold mcclintock who subsequently became so renowned as a sledge traveler took part in it by eighteen fifty the whole country had become thoroughly aroused and the government decided to send out strongly equipped expeditions the enterprise and the investigator under captains collinson and mcclure were sent out to search by way of bering strait and four ships under captain austin were to seek for traces of the missing party by way of lancaster sound austin's expedition failed to find the missing men but it was excellently conducted and organized and its sledge travelers among whom was mcclintock covered over seven thousand miles and discovered more than one thousand two hundred miles of new land when captain austin returned to england nothing had been heard of the enterprise and the investigator and after some discussion and consequent delay it was resolved again to send the four ships to the arctic not only franklin's men but also the enterprise and the investigator had now to be searched for it was a case of search parties looking for search parties in their main object that of clearing up the mystery of franklin and his companions these expeditions were not successful but in other ways they more than justified themselves both collinson in the enterprise and mcclure in the investigator succeeded in finding a northwest passage and much needed help was brought to mcclure by the expedition sent out partly for the purpose of aiding him and collinson further the sledge journeys of mcclintock and meacham during these expeditions were unrivaled in result and a real triumph of organization owing to the outbreak of the crimean war in eighteen fifty four popular interest in the fate of the franklin expedition diminished but lady franklin remained loyal to the object to which so many years of her life had been dedicated and after the government had refused to assist her further she decided to fit out a private expedition of which captain mcclintock took command in june eighteen fifty seven the fox a steam yacht of a hundred and seventy seven tons started on her voyage to greenland but on reaching melville sound mcclintock found it extraordinarily packed with ice the little vessel was firmly imprisoned 
and had to spend the winter in the drifting pack. During eight months, she drifted southward for nearly 1,200 geographical miles, and she was not liberated from her prison until April 1858. After such an experience, many leaders would have made for a port in which to refit. But McClintock was of a different temper. No sooner had the fox freed herself from her perilous position than he turned her head towards the north and once more took up the work that he had been sent out to do. And this determination to concentrate at all costs on the definite object in hand ultimately met with its sad reward. In June 1859, it was proved beyond any doubt that the report of the Eskimos, which had been received in England in 1854, to the effect that they had seen the dead bodies of several of Franklin's men, was true. All the coastline along which the retreating crews performed their fearful march must, McClintock wrote, be sacred to their names alone. Among the many feats that McClintock and his men performed during this last search were a march round King William Island, the discovery of the one navigable northwest passage, and the discovery of some 800 miles of new coastline. As far as geographical discovery was concerned, the main result of the many expeditions sent out in search of Franklin was that the islands to the north of North America had been mapped out. In 1853, an American expedition under Elisha Kane, which was sent out in search of Franklin to the north of Smith Sound, was fruitful in geographical discovery and outlined what had been called the American route to the pole. Interest in the Smith Sound route began to grow in England and was stimulated by another American expedition led by Charles Hall in 1871. But although the desire to undertake more Arctic research was strongly felt by many Englishmen, it cannot be said that it was encouraged in official circles. In 1872, Mr. Lowe and Mr. Goshen did receive a deputation of Arctic enthusiasts, but were by no means encouraging in their replies. An expedition, however, under Commander Albert Markham, sent out in 1873 and succeeded in capturing 28 whales, which were worth nearly 19,000 pounds, and the result of this voyage was to stimulate the idea of further Arctic enterprise. In November 1874, Lord Beaconsfield, who was at the time Prime Minister, announced that an Arctic expedition to encourage maritime enterprise and to explore the regions around the Pole would be sent out. Sir Clements Markham and other Arctic enthusiasts in England were delighted with this announcement, but their delight was short-lived. These enthusiasts had for years been advocating that exploratory work should be undertaken in the region round the Pole, but they did not consider that a mere rush to the Pole should be undertaken until, at any rate, work of more value to mankind had been done. The conduct of the projected expedition was taken over by the Admiralty, and great was the consternation of Sir Clements and his friends when it was announced that the main object of the expedition was to attain the highest latitude and, if possible, to reach the North Pole. However displeasing such an object was to these enthusiasts, 
they could not but rejoice at the interest shown in their expedition and in the fact that captain nares was appointed to command it at the end of may eighteen seventy five the ships sailed from portsmouth and on arriving in the arctic regions nares had to bear in mind his definite instructions in short exploratory work was to give way to an effort to reach if possible the pole itself but anxious as he was to carry out his orders one terrible scourge stood in his way scurvy that deadly disease attacked his party during the winter and nearly half his men suffered from it under such conditions he was severely handicapped but he decided to send out three sledge parties eastward westward and to the north lieutenant pelham aldrich was in charge of the western party and although most of the sledge crew were weakened by scurvy they marched over six hundred miles and succeeded in reaching eighty two degrees forty eight minutes north a few miles farther north than perry had reached some fifty years previously in eighteen eighty two an american expedition under lieutenant greeley though terribly unfortunate in some respects was successful in wresting the record for farthest north from the british we must turn aside for a moment from these efforts to get farther and farther north to mention the exploits of that distinguished swedish explorer adolf eric nordenskiold as early as eighteen seventy three nordenskiold began to think that the northeast passage by the siberian coast might when found prove to be of great commercial value and after some preliminary expeditions he in eighteen seventy eight set out in the vega on his great voyage and in august the ship passed cape chelyuskin the most northerly point of the old world by september however the vega when very near to the completion of her task was so surrounded by ice that she could proceed no farther and for ten months she was held a prisoner not until the following july was the vega free to resume her voyage and shortly afterwards she rounded east cape and saluted the easternmost coast of asia in honor of the completing of the northeast passage nordenskiold both as an explorer and as a man of science has left the world greatly in his debt and it has been well said that when he died a vast amount of knowledge died with him nordenskiold's name like fritjof nansen's is intimately connected with exploratory work in greenland nansen was born in eighteen sixty one and he was only twenty-seven years of age when his devotion to discovery led him to make an expedition on lines that were as courageous as they were original up to this date in eighteen eighty eight the recognized method employed in polar exploratory work had been to establish a base where stores were placed and from this base to march as far as possible in various directions but when nansen determined to cross greenland from east to west he paid no attention to recognized methods with five companions he in june eighteen eighty eight was taken in the jason to the ice's edge on the east coast of greenland and there the explorers hoping shortly to reach land took to their boats some time however passed before they could make a landing but eventually a suitable place was found and then they began their great march with no base to which they could return 
the party had literally taken their lives into their hands, for failure almost certainly meant death. Starting on the 22nd of August, the party, four days later, had mounted to a height of 6,000 feet, and by the middle of September had reached the summit, 8,250 feet. Eventually, the explorers managed to reach the Danish settlement at Godthab, and in the following year returned to Norway. It was a fine effort, fruitful alike in geographical discovery and in meteorological results, and, famous as Nansen's name subsequently and deservedly became, by no means his least claim to the honor is derived from this great march across Greenland. Between 1892 and 1895, the American Lieutenant Peary, using dogs for purposes of traction, made two successful marches across Greenland and so prepared himself for the attacks on the North Pole itself, attacks which he was ultimately to bring to a successful conclusion. The date 1893 will always be renowned in the history of Arctic exploration, for during that year, Nansen embarked upon his remarkable voyage in his no less remarkable ship, the Fram. From careful observations and investigations, Nansen was convinced that there was a continuous drift of ice from the northeast shore of Siberia across the Arctic Ocean. Hitherto, Arctic explorers had struggled hard to avoid being beset by ice. Far from following in their wake, it was Nansen's plan to get his vessel frozen in the pack and then to drift toward the pole. It would be untruthful to say that his plan was encouraged by the majority of Arctic experts, but Nansen was not the man to be dissuaded from any project which, after consideration, he had taken in hand. For such a voyage, an especially constructed ship was necessary, and so Mr. Colin Archer was instructed to build a vessel specially designed to resist ice pressure. The main object of Nansen and Archer was that she should slip like an eel out of the embraces of the ice. Nansen calculated that the drift would take about three years, and he provisioned the Fram for five years. On this historic voyage, Nansen was accompanied by twelve other adventurous men. Sailing from Norway in July 1893, the Kara Sea was crossed, and early in September, Cape Chelyuskin was rounded. About a fortnight later, the ship was frozen in, and the great drift began. During the next months, the Fram was given ample opportunity to prove her worth, and she seized it nobly. In October, great pressure from the ice was experienced, but both then and later the ship resisted and rose to the pressure. During her first year in the ice, the Fram drifted a distance of 189 miles. During the second winter, Nansen, taking Frederick Johansen with him and leaving Otto Sverdrup in charge of the ship, decided to leave the Fram and try to reach the Pole. A start was made in March 1895, and in less than a month, 86 degrees 28 minutes north was reached. At that point, the explorers had to turn south, and after many perilous adventures, they landed at the end of August on an island of the Franz Joseph group. There they decided to winter, and there they had to remain for nine long months. 
when at last they were able to proceed a grave disaster was only prevented by nansen's promptitude and courage the explorers were on shore when johnson noticed that their kayaks eskimo canoes of light wooden framework covered with sealskins were adrift the loss of these boats could scarcely have meant less than death to the explorers and nansen immediately jumped into the icy water and swam to retrieve them it was an action as prompt as it was heroic and it saved the situation but nansen's condition when he brought back the kayaks to land has been described as more dead than alive and some time passed before he fully recovered from the results of his effort some weeks later the kayaks were once more made as seaworthy as was possible under the circumstances and nansen and johansen were again embarking on their adventurous voyage when by good fortune they were frowned by frederick jackson the leader of the jackson harmsworth expedition which did such good work in franz joseph land this meeting between nansen and jackson has been compared with a famous one between livingstone and stanley and even if the latter was the more dramatic the former was as opportune for there is no gainsaying that nansen and his companion were in a most perilous position in the meantime the drift of the fram under sverdrup's able leadership continued and she did not return to norway until august eighteen ninety six the results of the fram expedition were exceptionally important they threw sir clements markham wrote new light on the whole arctic problem nansen lifted the veil and his expedition was the most important in modern times it was discovered that there was a deep-sea ocean to the north of spitzbergen at franz joseph land extending beyond the pole in eighteen ninety seven a meeting was held in the albert hall in honor of nansen whose work both geographically and scientifically more than deserved the great welcome given to him in england in an introduction to his in the northern mists arctic exploration in early times nansen quotes words from the old norse chronicle the king's mirror that are curiously illuminating Quote, if you wish to know what men seek in this land the arctic regions or why men journey thither in so great danger of their lives it is the threefold nature of man that draws him thither one part of him is emulation and desire of fame for it is man's nature to go where there is a likelihood of great danger and to make himself famous thereby another part is the desire of knowledge for it is man's nature to wish to know and see those parts of which he has heard and to find out whether they are as it was told him or not the third part is the desire of gain seeing that men seek after riches in every place where they learn that profit is to be had even though there is great danger in it and indeed it may well be admitted that the factors which have helped to make the modern world are mainly a desire for fame a desire for knowledge and a desire for riches and woe betide the nation that forgets the first and second of these factors and loses its soul in concentration upon the last of them end of chapter three part one